The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. I'm Dan Roth, Editor-in-Chief here at LinkedIn, and welcome to This Is Working, a show where I talk with people who have an outsized impact on our professional world. And with me, I have my producer, Laura. Hey, Dan. Who do we have on the show today? Today, we have John Foley. He's the CEO of an incredibly hot company called Peloton. If you know anyone who likes to exercise, they either have a Peloton or have thought about getting a Peloton. Peloton is basically a company that tries to be in every part of your exercise life. They make a bike, a treadmill, they have instructors, they've got a place where you can go and take these classes, you can sign up for a subscription. If you are going to get in shape, the idea is that Peloton is the way that you do it. As opposed to going to a class where you join people in real life? Exactly. Now, you can join a Peloton class in real life, but the secret to Peloton is that you can do everything from home. It is supposed to recreate the best thing about a gym, but in your home on your own time. So they have this incredible bike that if you like spinning, it is feels like you're in spin class. You're staring at a big screen TV. You're watching an instructor who feels like he or she is talking to you, and you are pedaling your heart out trying to beat your fellow writers to make sure that you're the number one person in class. It's a lot of fun. So why would LinkedIn invite John Foley to talk? There's a couple reasons. Number one, Peloton is about to go through an IPO. It was last valued at about $4 billion. There is a lot of attention on this company right now. Number two, it's vertically integrated, which is super unusual for companies today. Vertically integrated means the Peloton controls every single part of its product, from how it gets delivered to how it's built. That means that they have to be a media company deciding what is the best exercise entertainment for you. They're a hardware company. They're building treadmills. They're building bikes. They're in charge of logistics and delivery. They have to deal with subscriptions. They do everything that typically most companies today will say, I'm going to become an expert in one particular area of this company, and I'm going to let Amazon do my distribution. I'm going to let someone else handle building the software. Peloton's like, nope, we're doing everything. We also talked about how he manages. For one thing, he doesn't do job interviews, and he tells young people that he doesn't believe that you should want to be an entrepreneur. Despite being an entrepreneur himself, he says, join a big company. You will learn a lot from being a part of a big place that knows how to actually manage people and can teach you a lot about what it means to work. So when people come to him and they say, John, I want to be just like you, he's like, mm, nope, go get a job somewhere. All right, here's my interview with Peloton CEO, John Foley. John, thank you so much for joining us here today. I've been getting to know your company from the vantage point of a bike in my basement. And what I've experienced is the Peloton, the Peloton encompasses way more than just this bike. You've got the classes, you've got instructors, you do have the equipment, you've got Peloton shoes, you've got the app, you've got data. As you prepare for an IPO, how do you describe what sets Peloton apart? Is it the combination of all these? Is it one thing in particular? How do you describe your moat? Sure. So there's lots of moats, Dan. I would say the biggest thing is that we are a global technologies platform for streaming great instructor-led group fitness classes into your home. So you think about the bike, you think about uh, our bike, the Peloton bike, you think about the Peloton Tread, which is also allows you to take the boot camp classes from home. And then you think about Peloton Digital, where you could do it on your bike or your tread. But it is, to your point, the vertical integration, the hardware, the software, the media, 
the retail stores and then the logistics of getting all of this into your into your home, set up um, happy customers in a bespoke way that all in total uh, creates a pretty big moat, I would say. Any of those that you could pull out and still be the same Peloton or is it required that all of them be there? Yeah, uh, we've, um, throughout the evolution of our, of our product and our, and our business, we launched without the logistics. And then we found that the uh, members weren't getting, weren't getting the experience you know, the, um, a third party would come and set it up in your home and then leave. And now if you order a Peloton bike, 85% of the time you will get somebody to come out that will walk you through the software and walk you through the content, help you with your shoes, help you with your account, and leave when you're on the bike, clipped in, headphones on, sweating, and they'll slap high fives and walk out the door. And you're like, wow, that was a delivery experience like nothing I've ever seen. So we do that now more and more because we know that we are delighting members beyond what they were getting. And uh, interestingly, Dan, I know you're a student of business like I am. Um, we have a, a metric called Net Promoter Score, NPS, at Peloton that we track like a lot of uh, modern companies. And we believe we're going to be the first company with a 100 Net Promoter Score because we care about the retail touch points, the delivery touch points, the member experience after the purchase. And then the media coming to you, as you know, Dan, is our media. Uh, it's our instructors. We, we are touching you throughout your entire customer journey, and we're trying to delight you at every phase. So much of the digitization of business has been about companies saying, there are these, I see a company that is a high cost company, they're trying to do everything, I'm gonna scoop out one piece of it and just do it myself. So when you have competitors looking to see this vertical integration, which is what gets you that high NPS, and a competitor comes around and says, that's great, they're gonna, their costs are too high, I'm gonna do just one piece of this and win. How do you defend against that? Well, uh, I don't believe we're open, uh, our flank is open to a low cost competitor because we have the scale now and because we are uh, moving upstream and controlling more of our, uh, of our supply chain through tight relationships with our contract manufacturers. Because we don't sell through channel or through wholesalers, we are going direct to consumer, as you know. So the opportunity for us to keep the cost low to the, um, to the consumer are optimized, whereas I don't think somebody could come in and do a piece of it and find a better product, or you could have an inferior experience for a lower price, but even then, I feel like we're gonna be able to have something that is incredibly affordable as we move. Um, right now, you can get a uh, bike, Dan, for, for $58 a month through financing. And as you know, you scale that within your house, so it's, you know, divide $58 a month by two, because your, your live-in partner is also riding the bike or, riding, or running on the treadmill. So, um, I think the vertical integration is going to allow us to control costs in a way that will also uh, make it hard for uh, competitors to enter the market. I've seen a stat recently that you control about 8% of the gym equipment industry, up from nothing in 2014. Oh, wow. What's your goal? Do you want... 90%, 100% of it? Yeah, uh, that's a good question, Dan. We're not uh, focused on the gym equipment opportunity at all. Um, a weird, fun statistic um, to, your, to your question is four out of five Peloton bike buyers were not in the market for fitness equipment. So we're not effectively selling fitness equipment. We're selling fitness. People want to be fit. They want fun, effective, convenient um, uh, fitness experiences from their home and that's what we provide them, and nobody else provides them. So we're kind of a category of one. Um, when you think about where we're taking our business, when you think about Netflix has 130 million global subscribers. I believe we should be able to have 130 million global subscribers ourselves as we push internationally and we push into new products and new categories. 
we think that the number of people in the world who want motivating fitness and want to get their heart rate up effectively and in a fun, motivating, entertaining way with a community of global people motivating them and, and obviously the world-class instructors motivating them, um, we think that that uh, total addressable market as, as in business speak is massive. Does the, the Peloton formula work everywhere? We believe so. We, uh, we launched uh, very successfully in the UK last year and in Canada. Um, we're pushing into a couple more European countries this year. Um, we think that the, uh, the opportunity is, is massive. We don't think there's that much difference between a, um, you know, anyone from another country. I don't want to t uh, expose the, the new countries we're going to. I'll get kicked. But in the UK, we found that uh, it's the same uh, psychology of wanting fitness and wanting to live a happier, healthier life. To your question, Dan, I will say the style of content might be different, the style of music, the instructor. So we have a studio over in London now where we've hired um, you know, locals. So we're not ex exporting the US content into different countries where we want, it be, we want it to be authentic. And you know, um, Brits, te uh, teaching Brits or um, instructing Brits with their music, their sensibility, their you know, pop culture sensibility of what they talk about every day in these programs. Um, so we think the media will be localized, but the, but the technology platforms, the hardware and software are, are gonna scale globally. You've had incredible success with Peloton. It's growing. It's, it's, it's got amazing buzz around it, high MPS, as we discussed. There was, this was not a guaranteed success. You had your early years of, of trying to find investors and customers was a difficult process. Would you talk about that? For sure. Yeah, in my mind's eye, it was a guaranteed success um, because I saw and we learned early that the consumers wanted it. But to your point, Dan, it was almost impossible to capitalize. The investors did not see it. And even if they did, they would say, wow, you're going to make hardware. You're going to make software. You're going to open retail stores. You're going to stream media. You're going to create a global television streaming studio. We're going to do logistics. This All of that was in the business plan from the beginning? Uh, for the most part. Logistics was kind of an asterisk, but we had to do it somehow. You had right. to deliver these bikes to 40,000 zip codes around the country and then globally. So you have to figure out logistics in some way, whether it's in-house or through a partnership. And there's, it's logistical heavy, as you can imagine. Um, and then at the end of the pitch, uh, they would say, wow, this sounds very capital intensive and very hard. Um, the, trouble th the trouble is you don't know if there's a market for this product. And I would say, well, why wouldn't people want better fitness at a better location with better instructors and better hardware and better software? And why wouldn't people want this? Um, and they would just say, show us a report that people are asking for this. Hmm. And I would say, there isn't a report. This is a new category of product. Doesn't this sound awesome? They said, it does sound awesome. Um, we're not going to be able to invest. But um, John, before you leave, if you're able to pull this off, keep us in mind because we want one of these bikes. And I was like, oh, God, please. Um, <laughs> Test my patience. Um, but so, so even they saw that it was a cool thing that they would want, but they just didn't seem, uh, Dan, as you know, a lot of venture capitalists have a no hardware policy. Mm -hmm. And there'd been some um, hardware companies that had struggled, that were cool at one point and then were no longer cool or were no longer good businesses. So people uh, would um, benchmark us as a hardware company. And it's like, no, 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 we're a media company. The business model subscription digital content so it's a better business model. It's not susceptible to the ups and downs of a traditional hardware company. And you don't have the hardware uh, business model with uh, um, uh, just arbitraging the delta between you know, uh, bomb and uh, consumer price. Mm -hmm. But uh, it, was, it was very hard. I, I always saw it. Um, obviously, that's why I was dogged and continuing to um, no after no to continue to try and raise the money. 
But uh, I will say the consumers did see it. As soon as we put um, the headphones on somebody with a prototype screen and a prototype bike, an off-the-shelf bike, and an off-the-shelf screen, and we'd stream in a cheesy um, class from literally behind the wall, someone would be teaching a fake class and to be there, and they would just lose themselves. It was immersive. It was as fun, if not better, because you have the best seat in the house. You have the best instructor in New York City, now the, some of the best instructors in the world. And so as soon as people could taste the dog food, they loved the dog food. So we knew we had something. It was just a matter of getting the capital to keep it going. While this was going on, you were in your early 40s. You had a family. Um, you, most people think about tech entrepreneurs, or the story we're told about tech entrepreneurs is, you know, just out of college, little to lose, a lot to gain, can risk everything here. As you were trying to convince these investors to back your company, you also had a family you had to worry about, your career was on the line. How were you able to justify keeping moving forward when you knew the costs were so high? It's a good question, Dan. Um, that was kind of the human story behind Peloton, which was, and, and, and I wasn't the only one that took sacrifices. I had a bunch of co-founders and we all were in that foxhole together. But for me personally, it was incredibly trying. I will tell you one of the things that made it tolerable was that my wife believed in me and was behind it, uh, or behind me and behind the company, and she also wanted the product. She was one of the early testers. I've learned that uh, men and women approach fitness and competition and motivation slightly differently. So I would be one of the prototypical dudes. You know, I, I like to do outdoor biking and bleed through my nose to try and win a race. And she approached it in a different way, maybe more musically driven or more rhythm driven. And so um, she's equally as fierce and probably a better athlete at this point, but she just thought about it slightly differently. So she would be on the bike. I'd be on the bike. We'd both be tasting the dog food throughout and as we pulled the thread through. But uh, it, was a, it was a tough journey. Um, interestingly, Dan, I will say, I do think, I thought my experience of having run some other companies and going to business school and my age and having run company or run teams and just my experience would be an asset. But to your point, I think a lot of the venture capitalists were saying, this guy's not 26, he's not 28. Um, is he willing to sleep under his desk and, and get this thing off the ground? Maybe he's a little long in the tooth. Maybe he doesn't look like other entrepreneurs. And I think that might have been a little headwind. I thought it was going to be an asset that I kind of had a little bit more gravitas and a little more experience. And I think the venture capitalists were thinking, this guy's you know over the hill and maybe not going to succeed because he's past his prime from an entrepreneur perspective. But who knows? It was trying. That's crazy. Your experience ends up counting against you. I, yeah, it's one of the many reasons that I was would try to put together and why I was getting so many no's, but um, no one would say that specifically, Dan, so it's, it's a speculation, obviously. Did you but, ever have doubts yourself? Or you ever get, get to that point where you're like, hmm, maybe they're right? Uh, I, I believed in myself, weirdly. My parents must have done a good job of, of saying that you can do anything, and, and I, I, I never lost faith. But it, it, was, it was trying for sure. You have, I was nobody, I still am nobody. And you'd have these named venture capitalists, people that I'd been studying for 20 years, named firms and named people within the firms. And you would sit with them and they would say, they'd hear all about it, hear all about you, and they said no. And you're just like, wow, that's, you know, this is a very smart, this person has bet on all the great companies in the past and they're looking at me and saying, no thanks. I'm like, it's pretty frustrating and, and you do have to walk out of that uh, meeting and kind of dust yourself off and say, why is, you know, that person I've had on a pedestal, 10, 20, 30 massive people, they all said no. It's just like, who is John Foley? Why, why would I not 
trust that they know better than I know. But um, I, I was dogged. And uh, again, my t- the team believed, my co-founders believed. We, we had fun creating you know, the platform. And the early um, people who experienced it believed. So we knew we had something. We got enough um, support from our own little world as we built it that we were pretty sure that these guys weren't seeing it properly. As you built, how many employees do you have now? 2,000. How do you think about building uh, corporate culture? What is, how would you, how would people, how would you expect employees to describe what it's like to work at Peloton? I hope they say it's the best place to work in the world and it's the best place they've ever worked. Um, We work very hard to try and create the best place to work with the best culture. You think if you're an engineer, it's the best tech stack, it's the best progressive HR, mission-driven culture, the right kind bars, the right IPAs on tap, the right air on chair, um, the right architecture of the, of the um, uh, office, uh, the, the right leadership, the right category, the right pre-IPO currency, the right growth, the right growth in your career and your own uh, you know, career opportunities and the right growth of the company, the profile of the company. There are all these things that have to line up that I obsess about personally because I think as we're going to be proud of what we build on the consumer side, we want to be equally as proud of what we build internally. And I will say, Dan, you hear these things in order to work to win in the marketplace, you must first win in the workplace. I think that's more true today than ever. And so we are incredibly committed to creating, you know, the best place to work in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, uh, there's hundreds of other companies also trying to do that. So it's a, it's a pretty competitive landscape, but, uh, I, I hope they would say that this is the best place they've ever worked. You talk a lot about measuring MPS for, to, to, to understand how your customers see you. Is there a number you look for, for employees? It's funny. Just last week, we decided to try and roll out NPS internally <laughs> on, on our people in the 360 degree. You're, you're all in on NPS. We're going to try it. Yeah. It's it's we are in all in NPS as a business, and we're just like, why don't we turn it towards our employees and see how it goes? It's it's going to be a, a uh, an experiment, but um, in the world in a world where we always say, don't let perfect be the enemy of good, I think it's a good idea, and we're going to test it and uh, and see where it goes. Being a tech company that obsesses about cultures. You really talk about yourself as being a media company, and you're creating stars. You, your instructors are have huge social personas. For sure, they get endorsements. They're followed. Uh, do you treat them differently? How do you make sure that they are staying with Peloton versus jumping to a competitor and taking their followers with them? Yeah, it's something we also obsess about. Um, let me give you the cavalier answer. Um, there's nowhere else to go. Peloton is a category of one. These people are training millions of people um, a month um, globally. So um, they can't jump to a competitor, really. They would, they would jump to a local gym in a basement down the street, and they um, uh, wouldn't really like that. That wouldn't be good for their career. The, the real answer, though, is uh, I'm, I'm, I'm being tongue-in-cheek there. Um, we are crazy committed to making sure that these people stay here for the next you know, decade or more. Um, we pay three or four X better than the studio down the street. We have, again, the pre-IPO currency where people are going to make good money. We allow them to build their career and their brand globally where they're teaching millions of people. But uh, more than anything, Dan, I would say we treat them incredibly well. We, we Back to the culture, we, we want to create the best place to work where people are happier um, on Monday morning than they are on Friday morning. And if we can achieve that, and that's what our goal is, then they're happy to come to work, they're making money, they're building their career, they, they're inspired by their colleagues. So um, again, I was joking about the Cavalier answer. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. 
In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From the minds of visionaries to the desks of disruptors, I'm Lars Schmidt, host of the Redefining Work podcast. Join me each week as we explore the new world of work through the lens of those shaping it. CEOs, HR leaders, investors, and more. Be a part of the conversation that changes everything. Subscribe to Redefining Work today. I've seen a quote from you that, where you said that you never attend a meeting where you can send someone else who can represent your, your point of view. Is that the way that you manage? I do. Um, in, in fact, I'm a student of leadership. And, and one time I heard uh, Mark Zuckerberg talk about how he, the first, I think, four or 5,000 people that came to Facebook, he personally interviewed. I'm the exact opposite. I, <laughs> I interview almost nobody. Um, because you run your department and I trust you to build a great team. And if I can help, you know, if you say, hey, John, I got some great recruit and she's, uh, you know, uh, coming in for the day, will you meet with her? I would say, absolutely. You know, I want to be supportive of you. But uh, the way Peloton is being built right now is very autonomously, um, where we hire incredibly talented people and we um, kind of point them in the right direction and get out of their way. Um, the Why that works right now is we're doing so much. We're still growing more than 100% year on year. And uh, we need to divide and conquer. It's, it's kind of necessity is the mother invention. Everyone has such a big job to do, including myself. You know, I'm, I've got my own tasks that I'm trying to do. That my whole team, they're all self-managed. They're all incredibly um, talented professionals. Um, and if they ever need my help, um, they can ask for it. Otherwise, we kind of slap high fives in the hallway on the way to the bathroom. And we support each other and, and we're there for each other, but it's a, it's a very divide and conquer, autonomous organization. How do you make sure the culture doesn't splinter? Um, I'm in touch with, uh, with you know, I'm, I'm friendly with hundreds of people at the company and they feel free enough to talk to me about things that are, if there's any place in the organization where things are festering, if there's a leader who, heaven forbid, is an asshole, um, as you hear Netflix, no a-hole policy, um, that's one of the things we care about. If, you know, these people, who all love and trust me and I love and trust them, they will raise their hand and say, hey, some, you know, Jim Bob over in, um, you know, accounting or somewhere is, uh, is not treating people with kindness and compassion and isn't you know, living the, the Peloton way of life uh, and treating people well and um, encouraging people and supporting people and all the just human decency stuff that you expect um, in, a, in a true team environment. I find out about those things and I care deeply about them and those people don't last very long. A lot of companies after an IPO find that the company's different, that it's, there's a lot of money now around employee growth sometimes happens a lot faster. First of all, is it important to you that the culture stays the same pre-IPO as post-IPO? What are you doing to put into place efforts to make sure that the company stays the way you want it to stay? I'm glad you're asking these questions, Dan, because this is the number one thing that I care about. We have a world-class VP of HR, a VP of people, Amy Stoll, who is a 10 out of 10 and has crushed it for the past four or five years, uh, building us from, I think, 60 people to 2,000 people. 
I recently, William, my partner, the president, and I recently talked to her and said, do you mind if we bring in somebody who is a chief people officer who has taken a company from 2,000 to 20,000 and maintained a world-class startup culture? And she said, I don't mind. I've never done that. Let's go find somebody. So she checked her ego and was fine with being layered in a sense um, because she's so committed to what we're doing. And she and I are now, uh, the three of us with William, are going to look for the best chief people officer in the world who has taken a company from 2000, 20,000 without any degradation of this, of this fun startup culture, which I care deeply about, Dan, it's your question. Yes, I want it to stay the same. And we're gonna find somebody who's done it. And I'll tell you, there's five or 10 people in the world who have done it. You think about the great companies, the Googles, the Facebooks, the Netflix that have scaled in, in that sense and maintained culture. I will say some of them, some of the great companies that you and I study are no longer that and have gotten too big and, and are, you hear about rest and vest and you know, some cultures that just don't have that hunger and that dynamicism and that um, fam familial feel and the stuff that, that makes Peloton great today. I am nervous that we're gonna lose it in three or four years, especially as, if we transition into the public market. So it is one of the biggest things that I'm focused on right now. You talked about check your ego and keeping that hunger. While I was um, reading up on Peloton, I thought one of the most interesting stories was that the board asked you to step down. They wanted to replace you at one point. Does that still impact you? Do you think about that? And how does it change how you manage people? Uh, yeah, at least twice the board was looking to move. <laughs> um, it was a rocky road, Dan. Um, it was mostly related to capital and some opportunistic things and some egos. And it's just, I've, I've learned a lot. I mean, it's a uh, it's been a journey, and and um, I'm happy to report now the board is incredibly supportive, sure. and um, uh, I love our board today. Um, we have a fantastically supportive board. I just think that experiences like that can have an impact on how you manage other people. I'm curious if it has had one on you. I wouldn't say it's changed me. I uh, A couple times when the board was playing hardball on this or that, I never said this, but I, I got excited about, um, and I got pregnant with another startup idea. And so when they were trying to figure out whether I was going to be there, um, whether we were having disagreements on comp or equity or the team or uh, how we were raising money or whatever the disagreement was, I just, in order to sleep well, in order to have negotiating leverage, I decided that I was going to go start something else. And a couple times I was disappointed that things worked out at Peloton because I was so excited about this other idea. But I just had to do it for my own sanity because um, so that I wouldn't have to compromise who I am, Dan, because I think my style is going to prove to be pretty good, um, I, albeit I'm still learning. But my team likes my approach, I believe. Um, the board at this point likes my approach. And I don't think it was flawed. I think it was just the egos of different people and the way that they saw things evolving. And, and this is, you know, this happens at every company these stages, you know, people butt heads on different things. You're so focused on your vision, you've stayed true to it through rough times or good times. Do you expect your employees to have their own visions also? Do you want them to sign up for your vision? How do you, how do you balance that? No, we, uh, one of our four obligations is an obligation to dissent. Um, we do not have a culture of kiss the ring or um, our, our culture is you know, a flat feeling organization where everyone's, it's an idea meritocracy and you and I are in a meeting and you and I are gonna debate as peers even though on some org chart, you know, you're below me, but we actually in seven years have never published an org chart at Peloton because I don't want that optics. Um, when you and I debate, we're debating our ideas and that, that's a critical part of, of how Peloton is being built is 
uh, good ideas rise to the top, and those ideas can come from anywhere, and we try to support that. So, and it's it's important uh, culturally to make sure that if you're a super junior new person, you f have the um, the confidence to speak up and and um, attack an idea that you're hearing from from anywhere from coming from anywhere in the organization. And if we're able to achieve that, um, great things will happen at Peloton. Back to growing to 20,000 people, how do you maintain that where that 20,000th person comes right. to me and says, F you, I don't, I don't believe in what you just said at the team meeting, you know, that would be awesome. And I, I will be better and Peloton will be better if we're able to maintain that. How do you make sure that's continuous? Leadership from the front helps. I mean, I'm committed to it. Um, William, my partner, Tom Cortezi, um, who's my co-founder, is incredible um, heart and soul of that type of um, irreverent. Uh, Hisao Kushi, you know, the co-founder. Yoni Spang, a co-founder, is our, our chief technology officer. We have great folks who kind of foster that and, and believe in it and create a culture where people are relaxed and they can speak their mind. I mean, in, some companies uh, lead with fear. Some leaders lead with fear. I don't think fear is a, is a word that is ever talked about at Peloton. One of the questions that frequently comes up about Peloton is you talk about the democratization of fitness. When you have such an expensive equipment, how are you going to make sure this gets into the hands of everyone? It's a great question, Dan. We are also majorly focused on that is the democratization. One of the answers is you don't need to buy our, our treadmill or our bike. You can download our app. We were very proud in the last uh, three or four months we pushed into, we were on iOS, but iOS is largely an affluent person's platform. So we pushed into Android, we pushed into web browsers, we pushed into Fire TV, Apple TV, Samsung, Android TV. We're trying to be uh, platform agnostic with our content. So any screen you have in your home could be a place to take a yoga class or take a Peloton bootcamp class or take a, um, a Peloton cycling class. So if you have a treadmill in your basement, let's say you bought a $500 treadmill 10 years ago, you can transform that treadmill into a Peloton bootcamp class onto your 60-inch television screen by flipping it up to in any number of ways to get that content onto your screen. And in that way, you don't have to pay for our, our hardware, our bike, or our treadmill um, with just the digital platforms. Or like we talked about earlier, Dan, you could finance for $58 um, but we're pushing all kinds of different programs, all kinds of different R&D that we're working on in order to lower the bar for the entry level to get into the Peloton. And you don't mind if five years down the line, half of your users are coming just from the app and they don't have the equipment. You're agnostic on whether they are using the, the benefits of the, all the vertical integration you've done? 100%. Huh. I, I, I love it, Dan. I actually would love that scenario. We are seeing that a large number of people who experience, who taste the content on digital first, end up buying our bike or end up buying our tread because you get, you know, your wife gets addicted to right. your old cheesy spin bike in your basement and taking our classes and here comes your anniversary and you're like, honey, I upgraded you, here's the Peloton bike. It's gonna be the best gift she ever receives because it is a dramatically better hardware platform. It's high design, it's gorgeous, the screen's bigger, it's integrated. It, it's a much better experience, as you as you probably know, than having you know your iPhone or your or your Android device on the handlebars of an old of an old stationary bike. A couple more questions. Yeah. Would you talk a little bit about career advice? What do you when people come to you and they say, "Hey, I want to either start my own company or I want to succeed wildly at Peloton." Is there something you typically tell them? Yeah, I'm thinking about this, Dan. I have a 10 year old son and a seven year old daughter, so I'm thinking about okay, you know, coming out of college, what would I encourage them to do? And I've, it's been fascinating over my career. I'm turning 48, so I'm not a spring chicken. So I've seen a lot of these uh, cycles. 
Um, and, and I go back to the consumer internet days of City Search in 1996 was one of was one of my first jobs after I was in manufacturing in Waco, Texas. I've seen investment banking be a hot thing, consulting be a hot thing, private equity, hedge funds, you know, all these different th- paths of, hey, I'm going to get rich quick or I'm going to make a lot of money or whatever motivates people coming out of college. My biggest advice is to find a category that you enjoy, whether it's uh, real estate or um, consumer goods or retail or fitness or fashion or pick, a, pick something that you're interested in and go work at a great company. Just get five or 10 years of experience understanding the industry from a great platform, whether it's, you know, in the old days it was Procter & Gamble, you go to Cincinnati and understand brands or Frito-Lay in Dallas. I like real estate, some people like fashion, but go work at a great fashion house or go work at SL Green or something that you really understand it for five or 10 years. And then when you're 30 years old, consider being an entrepreneur if you've got some idea if something's been um, gestating. Um, but the, the people who say at 22 years old, I'm gonna go be an entrepreneur, you know, God bless them, good luck to them, but um, at least for my own children, I'm gonna say, get some experience and learn something at a great company where um, there's plenty of learning to be had and then start to consider, entre- I, I love entrepreneurship. Um, I'm not discouraging entrepreneurship. I'm just saying, at least for me, it happened later in life once I had the perspective and the benefit of some experience. And the field you chose out of college is so far from what you're doing currently. You were in manufacturing this Yeah, for sure. That, that was to pay my way through college. <laughs> I was at Georgia Tech and they offered me a, a co-op program in Waco um, where I worked in Eminem Mars candy manufacturing, wearing a hairnet and hard hat and steel toe shoes and uniform working midnight shifts. But um, fun thing, Dan, we made six million Snicker bars a day from this manufacturing plant. Wow. It's pretty, pretty wild. Do you still eat Snickers? I do. Yeah. It's good. Mars is a great family-held company, but it's uh, quality stuff. And then what is, when you are hiring, are there skills that you're looking for in particular that you think people don't spend enough time developing? Yeah, back to the reason why I think uh, you know, youngsters, 20-year-olds, uh, should get some real, real experience. There's, there's a mantra I heard at one point that I've stuck with is hire specialists, promote generalists. Hmm. So if you're looking to you know, build your SEO or build your SEM or um, be the general manager of a retail store or logistics or, or whatever you're looking to hire, if somebody has a specific skill set that you need, that's who you're talking to and you're excited. Wow, Dan, you've been doing this for two years. You'd be great. You know, you can hop right in and and, um, um, and start adding value. Two years later, when there's 15 people on your team, and it's like, wow, Dan Roth seems like he's he's got a lot of leadership skills and other intangible skills. And now that I've worked with him for two years, I can see him blossoming. Let's pick him out and promote him to be a GM level style guy. It's hard to find that GM style person by just interviewing a bunch of people because you don't really know them at that point. So the hire specialist, promote generalist is something that I particularly think about when I'm looking for people. Love that. So you've got a bunch of specialists in your company, let's say. What should they be doing to be able to be seen as being a generalist? Yeah, um, it's a great question. We have, ton- we have tons of them. We have 2,000 of them. Uh, working hard, leading from the front, um, uh, being supportive of their peers, checking their ego at the door, uh, not um, respecting authority, you know, challenging, bringing their own ideas and not, not, not being along for the ride in their entrepreneurial journey, but actually helping drive it forward, being cultural leaders. You know, I always say oh, I want to build the best place to work in the world, but when we're doing these orientations, you and these six people you're going to sit next to for the next six months, 
you're largely in, in control of whether you're going to be working at the best place in the world, whether your colleagues are going to have the best place to work in the world. Are you going to have little micro team happy hours? Are you going to have fun lunches? Are you going to play music all day? Are you going to have a supportive, you know, microculture on your team? Like I can only do so much. You could be the leader, the cultural leader on your floor, or your team. So in order to succeed at Peloton, I look for those people that are the micro leaders that are carrying the torch on all the other, on all the agendas that I care about, the entrepreneurship, the fun, the supportive, great culture. And uh, those are the people that rise up at Peloton, I believe. Awesome. Well, John, thank you so much. This is terrific. Thank you, Dan. So good. Appreciate you having me. That was John Foley, CEO of Peloton. If you liked what you heard, subscribe on Apple Podcasts. It helps new listeners find the show. Also, share what you liked about the show using the hashtag ThisIsWorking. You can also follow me on LinkedIn and get my newsletter, which is called This Is Working. I'm Dan Roth. Thanks for listening. This Is Working is produced by me, Laura Sim, with mixing by Joe DeGiorgi. Dave Pond is our technical director. Florencia Iriondo is head of original audio and video, and we'll see you next week.